Anthropological Airwaves is the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist, whose main offices are located on the traditional and ancestral territories of the Anacostan and Piscataway peoples. The Anacostia and Potomac Rivers have long been places of trade and gathering for indigenous peoples, and Washington, D.C. is now home to diverse indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island. American Anthropologist has published articles throughout its history that have taken knowledge from indigenous peoples for a scholarly audience and has not required its authors or editors to be good relations to indigenous peoples and communities. Acknowledging territory is only one step in repairing relationships between anthropologists and indigenous peoples. The editorial collective of the journal is committed to deep listening and engagement with indigenous scholars, peoples, and communities to explore ways to be a better relation. This episode of Anthropological Airwaves was edited and produced on the indigenous territories known as Lenape Hoking, traditional homelands of the Lenape, also called the Leni Lenape or Delaware Indians. These are the people who, during the 1680s, negotiated with William Penn to facilitate the founding of the colony of Pennsylvania. Their descendants today include the Delaware tribe and the Delaware nation of Oklahoma, the Nanticoke Leni Lenape, Ramapo Lenape, Powhatan Renape of New Jersey, and the Muncie, Delaware of Ontario. Parts of this episode were also recorded, edited, and produced from the traditional territories of the Catawba, Waxa, Chera, and Sugary peoples, and specifically in Charlotte, North Carolina, a city located on the traditional crossroads of two indigenous trading paths, the Okanichi Path and the Lower Cherokee Traders Path, which facilitated the extensive trade network of Cherokee, Catawba, Saponi, and Congaree peoples prior to colonization. While many of the descendants of the Chera, Waxa, and Sugary communities eventually joined the Catawba peoples, today the Catawba nation continues to thrive as a federally recognized tribe located less than one hour south of where this recording took place. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of Anthropological Airwaves the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist. This is episode six, season three-ish. Hello, and welcome to this special feature of Anthropological Airwaves. My name is Kyle Olson, formerly lead editor and producer of Anthropological Airwaves. This is the first of two episodes based on interviews recorded at the 2019 African Critical Inquiry Workshop, African Ethnographies Conference, that was held at the University of the Western Cape in Cape Town, South Africa, by Sarah Rendell and Dina Asfaha, from the Department of Anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, I hear what you're thinking. I thought Anthropological Airwaves had been reborn as a new show hosted by Anar Parikh, and you'd be right. But we, the founders of Anthropological Airwaves, had left some quality tape on the cutting room floor, so to speak, during the editorial changeover from Deborah Thomas's tenure as editor-in-chief of American Anthropologist to Elizabeth Chin. We would like to recognize and apologize for the lengthy delay in producing these episodes. There are myriad reasons for this, but what is important is that we are pleased to bring you these three interviews now, featuring the following scholars. First, Nasifo Mngamizulu, a lecturer at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Her research focuses on national and transnational youth cultures, nation-building projects in post-colonial societies, and community-engaged learning and teaching. Dominique Santos, a lecturer at Rhodes University. Her work explores the nexus of music, play, dreaming, and heritage practices as they intersect with intimate experiences of the self, space and social change, as well as on dreams and the role of dreaming in refusing the conditions of oppression. Karnita Mohammed, a lecturer at the University of Cape Town. 
Her research focuses on issues of race, gender, disability, and identity in post-apartheid South Africa. She is also a novelist, publishing her debut, Called to Song, in 2018 with Quella Books. The African Ethnographies Workshop sought to prompt reflection on the concept and practice of ethnography in all of its slipperiness, transformations, densities, polysemy, and proliferation of voices. The conference aimed to raise questions around contemporary forms of ethnography across disciplines, especially focusing on ethnographies that are not exclusively written. To quote the call for papers, the workshop is particularly interested in understanding how ethnography and its conceptual work can allow us to grasp the complexities of contemporary African worlds, their precariousness, and their becomings. We are interested in exploring, one, the work of theorization that ethnography makes possible, two, understandings of public ethnography today, and finally, three, ways to rethink ethnography from the African continent. We selected these interviews because they represented rich dialogues on each of these three areas of exploration. In the first of the two episodes, you'll hear from Sarah Rendell and Nasifo Mengamazulu, and in the following episode from Dina Asfaha and Carnita Mohammed, as well as Sarah and Dominique Santos. We hope you find them as rewarding to listen to as we did. And with that, I'll pass the metaphorical microphone to Sarah. at the University of Western Cape with Dr. Nasifu Ngomezulu, a lecturer at the University of Witwatersrand. You had mentioned that you are um, currently working on growing a network mm. of South African podcasters. Mm. So can you tell me a little bit more about this network and the work you're hoping it will do? maybe background to lead into um, why it is that I think we should form such a network. So my friends and I, we worked on campus radio when we were students, and it was a really beautiful space to think about what it means to work in community radio. And a lot of our understanding of what it is to work in radio, for me, was derived from listening to Okozi FM, listening to local radio stations. And there's a very different kind of relationship to audience and producing media from what I grew up listening to, to what I'm now producing as a podcaster. And I think the huge difference is because the register of podcasting, I think, is so largely dominated by Euro-American producers of media. And we get lots of access to it when I search on my iTunes I just find a lot of American podcasts and I don't see as many South African or even African podcasters. And so it gives me a sense of what the appropriate or professional style and register of podcasting ought to be. And I, I find it a bit troubling that I grew up with such a rich history of radio and media producers in South Africa. And yet when I do podcasting, I produce a very different kind of voice. I speak to a very different kind of audience. I'm Assuming that, I mean, even the numbers for our podcast, we get a lot of listeners in the global north. And so the cost of data, cost of actually producing your own kind of podcast as opposed to working at a big radio station where you can kind of transmit, all of these have an effect on why it is that we don't really see a lot of South African podcasters. And so 
my mates and I who come from a wide range of disciplines and fields. I've got friends who are media practitioners. I've got friends who are actors. I've got friends who are academics. Um, who else is making podcasts? People who want to do book reviews and just talk about like things they read. So it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag of people who are wanting to produce podcasts. And we really want to trouble this idea that we ought to sound or produce podcasts in a particular register in order for them to be legible at, as podcasts and see what it is to actually make a podcasting community in the global south that isn't necessarily responding to or in defense i guess against like a hegemonic euro-american podcasting style but just to see what it is that we can make if we make radio or podcasts in a way that we just enjoy listening Instead of being so concerned about becoming legible to yeah yeah certainly audiences. yeah certainly and I mean I mean no shade on American podcasts I I love listening to the read I love listening to still processing I love listening to NPR <laughs> and and like this is very beautiful and professionally done but also I feel there's like a distance there's a huge distance uh when i my mom asked me what i'm listening to she's just like uh boring and i want her to be able to listen to my podcast and be like cool this is entertaining like i will drive and listen to this in the same way that i listen to american podcasts so i want to i want to appeal to my mother and my sister as an audience as opposed to trying to um get ira glass to be like you're really doing great i mean shout out ira glass if you're listening but you know he's not my intended audience i want people on the continent to be able to recognize the conversations, the story making and feel like this is a storytelling form that is accessible. Mm. Yeah. And you anticipated what my next question was going to be. Yeah. In the podcasting that you have done, because you have substantial experience actually <laughs> producing and acting in podcasts, has the audience you imagine personally been different in what you've produced prior to now? Certainly, yeah. I think it has to do with the type of podcast that we did. So the Academic Citizen was around issues in higher education. And so our primary listenership was people who work in academia, mostly academics, scholars. Um, so we're having in-depth conversations about issues and concerns within that particular sector. So I think that's maybe why <laughs> my friends and family weren't that interested outside of like my intellectual community. But yeah, we, we did find that in, in an attempt to try and think about like creating more access to higher education, to knowledge as a more decolonial democratic practice, we still weren't getting those listeners. We were still very much talking to the same people who were at our seminars. And I, I think it's something that we are missing and to, to trace back some of those missing steps maybe is that the register in which we're producing this democratic media is not recognizable. And so how do you make it recognizable to people who definitely listen to the radio? They're just not listening to our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then what I'm hearing you saying is that taking something out of written form so that you're not putting the burden of reading on somebody, moving it into an um, audible form where people can listen isn't enough. Yeah, that's certainly not enough. Yeah. It's the first step. And then you then have to think about the register mm. in which you're speaking and um, the shape that 
conversations even take, mm. whether or not there is space for spontaneity and yeah. what kinds of spontaneities arise and, mm. and to whom those are legible. Yeah. And and for me, that's often when people are like, you're an academic, boring. Why should we care? Please don't bring this up at a party. Are you going to try and teach me? And then we'll have a conversation and people are like, is that what you do? I'm like, yeah, actually there's some interesting intersections between your media gig or your acting gig or your waitressing gig and the work and conversations that we're having because especially in anthropology, we're interested in the everyday. And yet the way we translate the everyday in our ethnographies just becomes like completely foreign to the very people whose lives we are kind of thinking with. And maybe that's part of the problem is that like demonstrates that we're not actually thinking with people's lives, but we're actually maybe thinking above and kind of that idea of anthropology being like interpreters of culture, looking down and explaining to people who they are and what they're doing. And that I definitely think that comes through in then what people assume we're doing in our podcast and what the conversations we have. And then you're like, just give it a listen. And they hear it and they go, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I don't know how mm-hmm. you moved from Wu-Tang Clan to Bell Hooks to Tanisa Mazwai. What? How did that happen? And you're like, come through. <laughs> Let me tell you how. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you are having to demonstrate to people that um, what you're doing is different from the thinking above and about mm-hmm different from the alienation of people's everyday worlds from them for a metropole academic space. Mm. And instead, you're actually having conversations with the people that might have been written above or about. Mm. And then that's the, that's the attempt, whether or not we're successful at that is <laughs> mm. another thing. But that's certainly the attempt. And I mean, how is it we fail? And can, can our failures be teachable? Because I do have a big desire for people to to be more familiar, at least, just more familiar with anthropology, um, which, you know, is the handmaiden of colonialism and people just don't really want to talk about it. And we need to engage with this discipline because it's not going anywhere. And so um, to know, like people are like, what, you're a black anthropologist? They exist? I'm like, yes, we do exist. And we write and we podcast, and we engage. We want people to imagine a different kind of anthropology. They also need to recognize there are different forms of doing anthropology, different kinds of anthropologists with all kinds of different political objectives and dispositions that are much wider than the colonial project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In actually talking about imagining a different kind of anthropology, Mm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it has been like for you to do anthropology among youth, with youth, of youth, or for youth, Mm. depending on how you see um, your research praxis. Mm. So how I come to do work with, on, about young people is because I was a young person once upon a time. (laughs) And I mean, like many uh, students that I teach now, I stumbled into anthropology. I was a law student and I happened upon this discipline and it intrigued me. And when it came time to start doing research projects, I was like, I want to answer a particular question that I found troubling. And it was about my own history and my own biography that shaped my interest in youth because I was born in 87 and so we were the first 80s babies. 
we were the first generation to fully be in multiracial integrated schools in South Africa. And so I've had all these questions and been troubled about what does it mean for me to be a black South African, to be black in a context of education that was just so deeply colonial and mm. British and this integration didn't so much look like integration than assimilation later on in life. And so that's where my research question came from. I was like, what are we doing in these integrated multiracial schools? And so I was like, let me go speak to some young people who've gone to similar schools that I did and let's have chats about this. So this is how I come to, to conceive of uh, my area of research with young people is it comes from my own biography of just like, I was concerned with how I was educated. I want to talk to other people who've been educated in a similar way. Um, and this was, yeah, I was like 2019 when I did like my first mini ethnography <laughs> with young people. And it was just with mates. And I was like, let's have conversations about the kind of schools we went to. And then uh, the more I continued this work um, with my work in Mauritius um, and engaging with people in high school and I was well into my MA work at that point that was I found that really interesting because I was no longer doing kind of peer-to-peer -peer research but now I am full-on with teenagers and you think you're young until you're with a teenager and you're like wow wow there is a whole other world mm -hmm. that I've full-on missed in the last five years since I left high school and to remember that to remember the courtyard, to remember the politics of the cafeteria, to remember the strangeness of a teacher in a classroom, which is not too far from a university space, but it's it's bizarre when I'm sitting there with my notebook and I'm trying to be inconspicuous doing fieldwork in a classroom. You're like, I am not a teenager. Like I'm quite far in, in experience and I am I'm deeply curious about how young people in the age of social media, are growing up under circumstances that appear on the surface to be vastly different. But when you start engaging in conversation, like many incidents in anthropology, when you start engaging in, in conversation, you start to recognize the commonalities and how things become inflected in different um, intensity or severity or how questions that I was plagued with as a teenager suddenly don't seem to to matter so much to to this particular generation and so working with the category of youth is, is kind of strange because um in the south african and mauritian context it's kind of uh, people over 13 below the age of 35 and i was like i am a youth then i am still in there but my work particularly in schools was quite instructive in troubling this idea of age as a marker of youth that like how how do we tell a nine-year-old who is the head of a household that they are a child and not a youth yeah um how do you say to a young person who is you know a mother or has all kinds of responsibilities and life experiences that they are not quite fully formed in personhood like so i this idea of of gauging youth by age, I don't think is very useful for us to understand who young people are. And even like the word youth, you know, in that's trouble, right? Uh, because it's a it's quite a modern concept. Like it mm. comes through modernity. We, we receive this category of youth. 
Uh, you were a child and then you were married. Let's carry on, you know. Mm-hmm. But now we have this residual category because we've invented schools and the factory model and all kinds of other politics and uh, experiences that shape how we've come to classify even the idea of youth. And I think there are two things that I find really important, or well, three. The first is the, the role of this category on the African continent. So the United Nations a few years ago um, issued a statement that this is the generation of youth in Africa and the global south, I guess, um, because we're going through a youth bulge. Um, there are a lot more young people being born and living and surviving. And so we are having an increasingly young population. And you can see that playing out so clearly in the South African context with the kind of political movements, political parties, the the calls for uh, decolonization, land redistribution, um, economic empowerment. All these calls have come from a pushback of young people against what they're feeling as an older generation's kind of lethargy and and unresponsiveness to uh, the challenges of the 21st century. And so this youth boredom, deeply fascinated in uh, because I think it's going to shape this continent very greatly and is already shaping this continent in very significant ways. The second then, um, which I've kind of mentioned, is this relationship between young people and older generations. I don't think you can talk about youth without talking about this relational nature of this category because there are no youth without so-called adults or grown-ups. Um, and so I'm also very interested in this relationship between generations um personally I'm, I'm struck by how my mother and I are not just speaking in different languages because of me being her child but how deep the schism has been between the post-apartheid generation and the generation that grew up during apartheid and so very small anecdotes to demonstrate this. Um, I, I was probably in the fifth grade and I had a white friend come and sleep over. And it was the first time my mother had been around a young white person who was coming to her home to sleep over and like to tell them, make your bed. This has never been an encounter that she's had with a white person. And I was just like, this is bizarre. Of course, pff, of course you're going to tell my friend what to do. Like you're the mom and we're here for a sleepover. So let's go. These generational experiences marked by this huge, and I mean, I say huge political shift um, with a pinch of salt because there are still many continuities and problems with the legacy of apartheid. But um, I'm, I'm deeply interested and invested in this intergenerational relationship, which I think, if we don't pay enough attention to it, can be a mark of um, of conflict um, and. I, I don't think it necessarily has to be so, especially because in um, I'll speak of my family tradition as a Zulu speaker, the relationship between older and younger generations is like spiritual, it's deeply nurturing, it's so important, it, these power dynamics to be negotiated. And when you introduce like such a huge political shift, you disrupt this intergenerational relationship. And so I'm really deeply fascinated um, with how, how do we talk to young people and how young people speak to older generations um, when our worlds really are just like wildly, wildly different? And then lastly, um, the racialization of this category of youth, I mean, in South Africa. And I, I would guess um, in the United States, this category is, is deeply racialized. Um, a youth in South Africa was often not just even a, a black 
young person, but it's also a black male and a black male as a political agent, as a, a potential danger to the apartheid state and imaginary um, youth had to be kept in line and disciplined. And the, the term teen was always reserved, uh, almost always reserved for white uh, young people who, who retain a perpetual childlikeness and can explore and be young and make mistakes. And the youth is criminalized and is surveilled. And I'm also very deeply interested in this relationship between teens and youth and how we use these terms. Um, yeah. Mm. You, you spoke most recently about the differences between teen and youth, youth being a racialized category to be disciplined, um, criminalized, mm. controlled as threat mm. to a white supremacist status quo. Mm. Um, so youth as a politically dangerous and therefore hyper-surveilled, hyper-scrutinized, hyper-disciplined mm. category. Mm. One that's only already gendered as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And then you spoke about teenness as hailing a kind of innocence, a freedom, uh, an ability to develop in any way that they might want mm. um, because it's a white category or, or like an unmarked white state. Yeah, unmarked white, and also I mean, it's it's the 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 object of the the ideal capitalist subject because then the teen is at the mall and the teen is having fun dating and buying makeup and buying Levi's and buying 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 right, um, and the rainbow nation imagining South Africa post apartheid as a rainbow nation as a very neoliberal country is that everyone can become a teen. Black and white can all become teenagers. If you follow those, these rules and are disciplined, if you are not kind of agitating for land and you're not talking about economic freedom, um, if you're not poor, if you have money mm-hmm. to buy into the dream, then you too can be a teen. And I also find that very fascinating how the teenager has... It, it, I think it modelled, ideally, the ideal teen is still a, a young white person, but how you can perhaps buy into that. You can have proximity to that through access to, to money, financial means. Yeah. Mm. A proximity that's only ever asymptotic because the minute a black youth reaching toward teenhood mm. stands for any kind of a political um, claim, mm. then their teenness is... Usurped. Yeah, yeah. No, then they're a danger. They mm. are criminal. Yeah, mm-hmm. certainly. But you mentioned another term, which was childhood. I mean... Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I do know, but I, it's, I, I, I'm weary of childhood and work in the area of childhood because of the disciplinary strictures around ethics and working with mm. people under 18. So I really work with like uh, children. Um, but I, I find the one, one small thing I've noticed about uh my colleagues and friends who are doing childhood studies or work in childhood is if the youth is a political problem, the child is a public health problem. And the child's well-being is very much, at least just on an observational basis, I haven't done enough research on this, but I, I notice how the, the, there are all these public health interventions um, 
rightfully so because of the HIV um, and AIDS crisis, um, that making sure that children can survive, literally, and live, has turned this area of life into kind of this medicalized kind of space. Um, and I just, I think that's really interesting. I mean, but yeah, that's just like one little aside that I, 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 I've noted about like childhood. But yeah. And I'm also going back to um, the second point you made about generations mm. and interactions between generations. I'm curious about how sometimes the, the conflicts that you describe emerging when just taking the example that you gave your mother's experience and your experience mm -hmm. were almost incommensurate and then what that forces to be seen about stories or like histories that are told as complete. Mm. In other words, ah, uh, this is a post-apartheid moment. Mm. But if, if there are these moments of um, conflict around a younger person's every day and then the way the parent or someone in an older generation who has an important role in their life reads mm. that um, same moment. Mm. If there are conflicts there, I wonder if that's also a site where it becomes possible to question the dominant history that's being told about mm. where we are now and mm. how we got here. Mm. Certainly. Um, and I think it does several things, right? One of the things I think it does not just happen in my life, but for many of my friends, is if you are attending multiracial schooling, um, so-called integrated assimilationist schooling, um, the term is Model C that's used in South Africa. So if you're going to a Model C school and your mother is having this experience with your young white friend, it's so easy for your default to be the, the dominant narrative that is being taught at school of the Rainbow Nation because your teachers are clever, your parents are paying a lot of money for you to go to this very clever school. And so how your very historically white and currently white institution is teaching you how to understand that moment, for me, used to take precedence. And I think for many years would read it in, you're being strange, mother, as opposed to, no, this is a deeply weird experience for someone who has spent their entire life, more than 40 years, living under a racist regime to have a young white child in their home and be treated as not only, as not actual, work, as not worker or servant, but to be treated as homeowner is like mind-blowing for my mother. And the, the, the anxiety that produces for her is like, what? I do with this child for the few hours there in my house like is this gonna be okay if what if something goes wrong what if their parents get it like I can only now with hindsight imagine the anxieties I produced for my mother when I was just like come on over it'll be fine this is gonna be swell you know and to think about that burden of history that she carried and almost had to protect me from you know in order to give me particular kind of opportunities that burden then means that she has to find different ways of articulating those anxieties for me so that I can have these relationships with these friends and I can live in the post-apartheid moment. But for her, it's, it's bizarre. And it's, yeah. it's, 
uh, can't think of a better word, but it's triggering. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's 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 a very strange and unusual experience for which I don't think I gave her enough time to really make sense of like, whoa, this is a lot. I was just like, my white friends have sleepovers, we're having sleepovers, they're coming. And it's just like, what is happening, right? And to have a language for the generations to speak about this that is adequate enough to capture what is happening for both of us um, and recognizing that the Rainbow Nation is not that language, that you know the, the history of apartheid is over and everyone is in tralala land just wasn't adequate to help us make sense or yeah you know, hold on to that moment mm. yeah you were being educated into use of the language of rainbow nation oh yeah and educated into disavowing the strangeness of your mother's experience of what was happening mm. and then because of that disavowing history certainly yeah and it sounds like if i'm understanding right before your awareness of that disjuncture between what your mother was experiencing and what you were experiencing became conscious, something you could narrate the way you just narrated it to mm. me, it was felt and affective. Mm, certainly, yeah. And, and felt in, a, in a, an impatient response, right? Um, because I'm getting on to get along. I'm here at school, I'm speaking the English, I'm wearing the little colonial uniform. I'm doing it. Why are you not kind of... You You sent me to the school. Like, mm. get with the program. This is what you signed me up for, right? Mm. And to also complicate for, uh, matters further, it's like, I, I can imagine that this was as bizarre for my white friend's parents. It's like, mm-hmm. this black child is out here, <laughs> like, just in our home, being a free... You know, I, I think they must have also been like, we literally were spoon-fed on this white supremacist narrative of this country, and now here are our children just turning up with whomever they want to turn up with at home. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but I think it's taken us, let me say that, I think it's taken us a, a, a moment to really come to terms with uh, providing ourselves the language to talk about these um incongruencies and hailing discomfort in those moments um and yeah i think that that growing up in the the 90s and early 2000s and going to school in these model c schools i think that's what really has pushed me to pay attention to young people and and what they're being interpolated into what are they educated to become and how how are we creating national subjects in in these different schooling systems Mm. yeah and and what are they trying to hurry you out of? Yeah. And not not to read history as kind of like this inevitable linear process, but I think there's something to be said about these 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 particular moments that happened in my household and many other households, um, that it's it's almost inevitable that we had a moment of really reckoning with how troubled our past and present continues to be mm-hmm. um that we, we couldn't just quickly play rugby have mm-hmm. world cup and just be like whoa we sure fix that racism <laughs> <laughs> lucky for us you know <laughs> that we, we our, our country had kind of time travel and just like have a moment and be like whoa uh-huh. this is hectic guys uh-huh. <laughs> like let us all take a deep breath and reckon with how 
wild and oppressive and violent and real, this, this mess that we're calling uh, a born-again country continues to be. Mm. And we have to name it. We have to develop a language for it in order mm. to be able to deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. Because the, the story we've been telling ourselves is not adequate. Mm. Not adequate to the recalcitrance mm. of the ever-present history, but also the active reproduction of these forms of oppression. Mm. You mentioned how you know we can describe this as the age of social media. Yeah. And <laughs> you, you said it like that because we don't want to over um, over-diagnose what yeah. that means for young people and who they are and how they interact. Transnational youth culture as imagined by advertisers, for good and bad, is deeply inaccurate. Um, and I don't know if accuracy is even important when you're marketing, but the the imagining of what young person, a young person in Johannesburg or a young person in Port Louis in Mauritius is being enticed by, by media advertising and such, is it's not it. Mm. It's not it. The people working in the ad agencies are really struggling to put their finger on who are these young people who are loc- who are located obviously in a particular context or local yeah, a local context, but also are up to date with what Nicki Minaj and Katy Perry and uh, who else I'm trying to think of like a anyway, all over the world, you know, they're they're watching anime, they they're doing the most. They're consuming transnational youth cultures and putting them together and assembling them in a way that makes it so hard mm-hmm. to be like, I'm gonna sell this to young people in Johannesburg using this particular register because I know how to get them. Right, mm. I know how to connect with them because this is what a young person in Joburg is. I don't know, this young person in Joburg is both into Pokemon and into hip-hop and also just a bunch of different connections and assemblages that they draw from their lives online and being transnationally connected. And I think there's a really beautiful opportunity that young people have not just to simply you know, whoa, moral panic, young people are in jeopardy because of the old internets. But because, and again, I'm speaking of not only privileged youth, actually, because you get, you know, multiple cell phone use, you get you get young people of all different socioeconomic backgrounds who are transnationally connected. I think it still holds. It's not, not just for middle class or wealthy young people, but there's an opportunity for self-narration and I think it's self-narration to an audience that they can recognize and that recognizes them that isn't necessarily going to be another young person in Johannesburg. It might be chatting to the guy I play, what's that awful game, Fortnite with online. Or um, we are all into, you know, this particular anime. And so this is our conversation that we're having. And I think that's really exciting that the, the connections aren't as easy or not as lazy, rather, mm. that we could, once upon a time, produce an anthropology of the Zulu youth and what happens to young people in Johannesburg. Whereas now, what's happening to a young person in Johannesburg is deeply informed by Black Lives Matter um, protests in Sudan. There, there are all these conversations and global, transnational youth connections 
that may not even be overtly sought out for, but are registered on on some level in how, like, I think many young people are producing a very sophisticated relationship with social media, far more sophisticated than I think people in their 30s, because we were kind of the guinea pigs of Mm -hmm. Facebook and MySpace and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But now I think this generation is like a bit more sussed Mm -hmm. about like, actually, my WhatsApp, my Facebook, my Instagram and all these things come together in a way that I think is still really interesting and unfolding. And I'm quite curious about that. Sure, I don't want to be whack and be like, I think young people are cool. That's whack. (laughs) Um, But in the way I approach my work as an anthropologist, I definitely write for my younger self. I find myself constantly going back to questions I had and and providing myself a language for, for those questions even to be articulated and doing an anthropology that I wish I had been reading in my first and second year, you know, curriculum. Um, So I I think that's really the audience I write for. And that's the first impulse to like ask a question or engage, you know, in any kind of research. But then there's something strange that happens from that moment to then publishing, Mm. doing that work. And my supervisor and I used to have this moment where she would just mark on work I'd submitted and just like, you sound like an old white man because there's a register that I'd go into be like, this is how a proper scholar addresses their audience. <laughs> it's just like, now you don't sound like yourself. I don't know who this is, mm-hmm. but this is strange. Can you go back to sounding more like yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm still figuring out that, that sweet spot between writing for my younger self and engaging my fellow scholars and the academy, such as it is, um, bringing these two two voices that I I have within me, uh, bringing these two voices together in order to um, be able to articulate, I think, something that is unique about how I come into to scholarship and how I approach my research. Um, I, I certainly am, don't want it to just be, you know, this exercise only for myself. And I also don't want it to be this weird thing where I sound like an old white man. I really want to find the sweet spot between these. And maybe the way I find it is through like a series of attempts and failures and playing with different modes in order to figure out yeah, how, how to make that um, legible. <laughs> yeah. It's it's amazing hearing you talk about the process of disalienating your own voice from mm. your writing when you move into an academic form. And um, equally interesting to think about the self that you would address. And it, it strikes me that maybe that self is um, a composite self. I oh, mean, yeah. Addressing a younger you is also addressing younger people you know now who might be looking for a language like that younger yeah yeah was looking for yeah and the old white man is in me too (laughs) (laughs) but uh, (laughs) but that that's also part of like my education and that voice comes into it my Mm -hmm. mother's voice comes into it and so yeah it's definitely a composite um and it's to it's to figure out how i speak clearly as possible um without kind of going i'm going to alienate you know 
because some of my old white male professors were really instrumental in my education, um, whether I was fighting them or just learning about the discipline from them. They, they can't just be disappeared. Um, and so how, how do I deal with them and where do I put them <laughs> and in mm. which order I, I place them is, is also a strange game to play. Yeah. We started with um, questions of audience and um, address, and we ended there. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Ngomezulu, thank you so much. Thank you. This is great. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Anthropological Airways. We'll be back next month South Africa special feature. This episode was produced and edited by Kyle Olson. The interview was conducted by Sarah Rendell at the African Critical Inquiry Workshop African Ethnographies Conference held at the University of the Western Cape in Cape Town, South Africa in 2019. Many thanks to Nosifo Magomezulu for her time and insights. The intro and outro music you hear is Waiting by Croander. The episode also features the song Huku by South African artist Sho Majosi. As always, a closed caption version of the episode will be available on the Anthropological Airwaves YouTube channel and a full transcription on the episode page on the American Anthropologist website. Links to both are included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Anthropological Airwaves wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to rate and review us while you're there. A five-star review in particular will help other listeners find the show. We would also love to hear from you in general. If you have feedback, recommendations, or thoughts on recent episodes, send an email to amanthpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on our Facebook page, Anthropological Airwaves, or on Twitter with the handle at AnthroAirwaves. Find links to all of our contact information in the show notes and on the Anthropological Airwaves section of the American Anthropologist website.